0: So much human misery has been a product of that us versus them, and of course, treating the them just uh, very differently and in problematic ways.
1: Welcome to the On Wisdom podcast with Charles Cassidy and Igor Grossman. Over the next half an hour, we'll be dissecting the latest research from the emerging field of wisdom science. We will discuss what it means for each of us and for society in terms of reasoning and living more wisely in the 21st century. We are very excited. For our guest today, our guest is Tom Gilovich. Welcome to the show.
0: Pleasure to be on the show.
1: Thank you, Tom. We've been very excited for this one. I'm going to quickly tell the audience a little bit about who you are and why they should be as excited as we are about you. Tom Gilovich is the Irene Blecker Rosenfeld Professor of Psychology at Cornell University. Among the many phenomena he has studied, he's especially well known for his work on the spotlight effect, the hot hand effect, the bias blind spot and self-handicapping. Tom is also the author of several books, including the wildly popular The Wisest One in the Room, How You Can Benefit from Social Psychology's Most Powerful Insights, with collaborator and field luminary Lee Ross.
2: All right, Tom, I have a question for you. Yeah. This is a very simple question. I uh, ask a few people, um, what should I ask Tom Gilovich? <laughs> and, they, and they tell me to ask you, Tom, why are you consistently so happy? What's your secret?
1: I wouldn't know.
0: I mean, downward contrast, that is, uh, and all sorts of counterfactuals. That is, if you think about human history and the times that one could have been born into and the places, it's hard not to be happy. That is, I was born in what's now called Silicon Valley. Before it was Silicon Valley it was you know full of uh, fruit orchards, apricots, plums, cherries. Uh, It was pretty Steinbeckian uh, at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm sure there was a social pecking order but I was unaware of it so it seemed very egalitarian. Of course it's not anymore but you know, being born in California at that time, never had to serve in, in war, you know, going to college, you didn't have to worry as much as today's students do about, uh, you know, getting jobs. Is there a market out there? Somehow you just had this feeling that you know, the economy is booming, etc. So, in other words, a, a huge amount of good luck and privilege makes it pretty easy to be
1: happy. It's a, it's a solid answer. Can't really argue with that. Um, I, I'm feeling slightly more cheery already. Um, uh, all right. I'm going to, I'm going to dive into, we've got three questions about, um, the main focus of the podcast, which is about wisdom. Uh, and then, uh, then we'll go into some more questions about, uh, your work specifically, but actually they overlap really neatly with the first question. You, you wrote a book, as I mentioned, called The Wisest One in the Room. And, um, you know, wisdom can mean many things. Um, and we're interested to know what, when we say the word wisdom, or when you hear the word wisdom, what does it mean to to you? And is there anything particular that you think um, may be overlooked that isn't often mentioned about wisdom that might be a bit, a bit counterintuitive? Um, we'd be really interested to focus on, on those aspects of wisdom. So what does wisdom mean to you?
0: Um, I don't know if it's counterintuitive, but um, I think that uh, wisdom has this suffused within it is, or our thoughts about it are suffused with the idea of practicality. Um, When we think about wisdom, it's easy to think about, who do we go to for wisdom? Uh, Who do we consult? Uh, And uh, when we do that, we're often going for practical advice. So, you know, there are brilliant theorists and they are rightfully celebrated for their brilliance, but they aren't necessarily the people that we consult when we have life problems. So I think mm-hmm. there's a big part of practical intelligence uh, here. And when we go to those wise people, or maybe there's a specially wise person in your life, a mm-hmm. mentor or something, mm-hmm. um, it's not necessarily that we're going for the answer, although that's always great. We're going for some just better perspective on the subject. And I think mm. that explains part of why when we think about wisdom or a wise person, what comes to mind is an older person um, who's had more experience and therefore has different ways of framing things, different perspectives to bring to the problem.
1: Mm. Just thinking on that, that idea of typically, you know, older people being wiser, do you think um, it's probably fair to say that as time passes you know the changes from one society sorry one generation to the next are greater do you think there, um you know when you had a stable society and the, the current generation was living in pretty much identical way to the previous one you can see how consulting someone who'd been in that generation been around for a while you know they would have very relevant advice do you think as society changes more rapidly that that sort of idea would become less functional does that make sense?
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And the 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 prototype that I describe going to the wise person that is typically an older person. I think that's less pronounced now because mm. you acquire these you know associations, this wisdom over time in an old world mm. that's not the current world, and that can that can be blinding. Mm. Um, you know, basically, wisdom is this broader perspective and. One way of thinking about wisdom, I think, is to think about its opposites, and uh, there may not be just one opposite, but one that strikes me is a kind of ideological blindness that you're not looking broadly because you have this theory or ideology that tells you this is the way to go. It's kind of similar to Phil Tetlock in his study of forecasting on the part of expert Forecasters, that mm. great body of work he did, and I'm blanking out on the title of his book where he put it all together. In the book, S- he talked about super forecasting. So, no, it's the one before
2: that, oh, um, the good judgment.
0: Yeah, is that what it's called? Yeah. Um, anyway, both books are terrific. Uh, in this <laughs> expert one,
2: expert political judgment. official is the yeah. yeah. So he saying.
0: got you know pundits on TV, people in government economics departments to forecast a bunch of events that looked like they were going to break one way or the other when people, the latter years of the apartheid regime in South Mm -hmm. Africa, for example, Mm -hmm. is it going to stay the same? Is it going to get worse? Is it going to get better? You make a prediction and then he just waits and sees um, what happens and your ability to forecast it and how confident Mm -hmm. you are. And what he finds is that people are, their confidence massively (laughs) exceeds their accuracy rate. But interestingly, he distinguished between two types of forecasters, what he um, called foxes and hedgehogs. And the hedgehog does this one thing really well, whereas a fox has a bunch of different things that it does. And I think a wise person is more like uh, a fox, that uh, different problems call for different perspectives, different analyses, whereas the person who's ideologically blind no free markets everywhere that's Mm. the solution to everything that'll cure our all our ills um Mm. you're you're subject to a kind of ideological blindness which is the opposite of an opposite of wisdom
2: so this it's a perfect transition to the next question that we have which is also about the practical aspects of wisdom. So you mentioned this practicality. So I have a very practical question for you, Tom. Yeah. If you were to pick one thing people could do to help them make wiser decisions, what would Tom Gilovich recommend?
0: Oh, wow. You. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if this is in my wheelhouse in terms of, boy, I'm going to come up with a great answer now, but it's in my wheelhouse in the sense of I have a, pet peeve that your question speaks to which is people um putting things thinking of things in black and white terms uh that you know things are either all good or all bad and of course Mm -hmm. so often it's the case that it's shades of gray and this is you know related to how instead of thinking of things as continua, we think of them in categories, even, um, you know, the color spectrum. (laughs) It literally looks like this is a different color than that Mm -hmm. one. And we know the electromagnetic spectrum is continuous, but Mm -hmm. boy, it just doesn't look that way. And, you know, we're seeing this throwing things into discrete categories play out all over the place, you know, right now, of course, with the Thoughts about what to do with people from long ago who were obeying norms that we consider odious now that they didn't consider odious? Do we want to throw out all the good that they did and ways in which they were impressive because of their adherence to outdated norms or not? And, you know, arguably that reflects some of, you know, it's either all black or all white when uh, I think it's the case that. Uh, most things in life are kind of shaded. Hmm. And then when you add on this categorization idea, when we um, not only think of categories, but some of the most ready categories is the category of us and them, then things really get problematic. And so much of human misery has been uh, a product of that us versus them. And of course, treating the them just... Uh, very differently and in problematic ways so if i could get rid of one thing i I mean you said uh you introduced the question in terms of here's a practical question for you um and i'm giving you a kind of impractical if i could wave a magic wand this is what i would do right
2: getting rid of our tendency to categorize things is uh, getting rid of something that probably makes us human to some extent as well
0: yeah and i'm and and serves us well in certain ways as well, although I'm, I'm willing to take the chance of, if we could wave the magic wrong and get rid of it, I think the world we live in would be, would be better. You know, it's often talked about, oh, categorization, it saves us all this cognitive mm-hmm. work and so on. But
2: um, I think we've got the capacity to handle that. Yeah. Simple categorization or more
1: sophisticated
2: categorization. Yeah,
1: fair <laughs> enough. I'm going to probably ask an even, bro- well, definitely a broader question. So like, you know, when we talk about wise behavior, part of it is a consequence of, you know, the individual's kind of dispositions, et cetera. But then obviously part of it is a consequence of the, the structures and the society they find themselves in. So like, do you have any thoughts? It's a tough question. So, you know, <laughs> no need for a perfect answer here, but like, do you have any thoughts about what we could change, um, structurally about our environments or our communities that would result in wiser decisions being made as a society?
0: Yeah, I mean, you're not, you're not going <laughs> to like this answer because it can sound pat and in certain ways it can almost sound outdated, but I think actually mm-hmm. the opposite is true. It's really contemporary, which is, you know, people always talk about we've got to teach more critical thinking in schools, we got to do it earlier. And, you know, Mm -hmm. the nature of the problematic debates going on in the world, claims of fake news, and uh, etc. The conclusions people are drawing from the information they get uh, from all the sources today, very much including social media, just calls out for some better critical thinking it would be um you kind of wish carl sagan were alive today to advance that cause um and you know that can sound not satisfying because it can sound sort of pie in the sky but i remain kind of optimistic about that partly because when you know i grew up intellectually in graduate school with, uh, you know, I was at Stanford when Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman were visitors and there was all and the Nisbet and Ross book had just come out mm-hmm. and there's all this discussion of the errors of everyday judgment. And so you risk all the graduate students received an implicit lesson that was different than the lessons they were overlapping, but different than the lessons they were learning in their statistics and mm-hmm methodology courses and it worked you could just see after being in the program for a mm. while people would say well you know what that's isn't that just a regression effect or there's no right. control group right. here and in not just talking about experiments but talking about life mm. and uh it we're perfectly capable of more sound reasoning and so i remain optimistic that if we taught it earlier and better than mm we would live in a better world
1: that that sounds i mean i don't have any beef with that answer i was thinking you know that sounds like that sounds pretty solid to me okay
0: let's get started <laughs>
1: let's yeah let's <that's> go <laughs> <great. laughs> so Igor, I'm going to hand over to you to transition to um, the non-wisdom base. I mean, obviously, all these questions tie back to wisdom, of course, digging a little bit more into some of the specific work that Tom has done. So over to you, Igor.
2: Thank you. Uh, Tom, one question that very closely follows up on what you were just Just talking about. So, when you were in graduate school, you encountered the works by uh, Nisbet and uh, Ross, or Ross and Nisbet and uh, Tversky and Kahneman, and it changed your perspective. When I was a graduate student, actually, when I was an undergraduate student, I heard about the hot hand effect. And uh, it was one of those classic biases that you teach to undergraduates to wow them. About uh, the shortcomings of the human mind. The hot hand, ha- hand effect, as you know, is where past performance is indicative of future performance. But then your work suggested the hot hand effect is not real. And that's what this sort of fallacy, to some extent, is about. And yet, later work, to my surprise, started to indicate that uh, there may be something that, about it that actually maybe it is real. Maybe there is something else going on. And so here's a meta question to you. Well, maybe you want to talk about this in the first place and correct me. I'm probably misinterpreting it altogether. Uh, But on a larger, um, if you take a step back, you take this perspective that we talked about earlier, Um, from the bigger picture perspective, uh, as the science evolves, so what's your current view on the hot hand work at this point? And how it has changed since you first introduced it.
0: Um, I mean, there is evidence now that there is something of a hot hand. Um, what, how big it is? Does it map onto people's perceptions? Um, what's the nature of it? There's still more work to be done on it. Right. Um, and in some ways, I'm. Right now, back to where we started. That is, we started with an interest not in basketball per se, although both Amos mm-hmm. and I were basketball fans. And so <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that certainly added to the appeal. And there were times we would lose sight of, are we studying <laughs> the human mind versus are not we possibly. studying basketball? Um, but, uh, you know, we started with the idea that, you um, just like we overestimate the streakiness in casinos where we know there is no streakiness for most of the gambling games, um, that people are overestimating it. And lo and behold, when we tested that, it seemed like there was nothing. And that made the, what we were doing even more interesting. I don't think it would have attracted the attention it did if we had said oh, you know, people overestimate how much streakiness there is. I would have found that every bit as interesting because it's a tale of, about the human mind, but right. basketball players probably wouldn't have <laughs> cared that much about it. Um, and um, so if we take the current stuff uh, at face value, uh, more on that in a second, Um, we're back to where we were because there's um, it's not a huge uh, effect and it certainly doesn't match people's intuitions about it. Uri Simonson has a real nice column in one of his um, data collada um, columns. I guess you call them columns Mm -hmm. or pieces, whatever, whatever they log. Yes where he compares people's beliefs with reality. And uh, even if you accept that there's a small correlation between past shots and current shots, it doesn't match uh, people's expectations. And I've done, you know, is not really, <laughs> this is too much to call it an experiment. What is it? Uh, I've invited people to uh, do this themselves, to feel this, which is watch the game. There's a game tonight. And there will be times when you feel like a player is hot. Whenever you do that, take out a piece of paper and keep track of how many shots they make. And everybody that has done this has been confronted with the fact, God, you know, that shot just went through. It touched nothing but net. It just looked really hot. Or you made several shots in a row. I was convinced this person was hot. And then when I look at my record over time of making these predictions so many times when someone showed all the signs of being hot eh, uh, you know there there was nothing afterwards there always we've said all along there's always a descriptive hot hand you know that whenever a player makes several shots in a row you feel different and it's a wonderful feeling right. you cannot argue with that and the question is how predictive it is and um, it's not as predictive as you think, which gets us back to where we started. Of why Why is the mind doing that? Organizing things in uh, ways that are more clustered than they really are. Statisticians refer to that as the clustering illusion. And, you know, why do we look at clouds and see faces and <laughs> things like that?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting also from another perspective. Um, some other scholars, when I told them Tom Gilovich is going to be on the Own Wisdom podcast, it's like, oh, this um, odd hand effect fallacy. So why didn't Tom pursue this work further after having such a smash hit? Because there's something interesting that is very unique, I think, to this case, in addition to the questions whether it's real, the phenomenon itself, or the fallacy, and uh, what is the magnitude of it, namely, uh, the way how you progress through it. A lot of researchers, when they find something so popular, or that that becomes then so popular, they stick to it, but you didn't do that. Is there a secret behind it, or is it just that you were so interested in so many other things? That, but at the same time,
0: um, you know, it's kind of multi determined. That is, um, I did some other studies. Um, you know, I've been involved with sports all my life, and so, um, when I'm thinking about psychology in right. the human mind, and some hypothesis comes up, and the question is how to test this, um, my mind often will go to the sports realm. Um, and so I've done a number of things in the sports realm and I've always felt a little, uh, ambivalent about that. There's nothing wrong with being a sports psychologist, but I, but that I'm not a sports psychologist. I don't want people to think of me that way, even though, again, there's nothing wrong with that. So I've always felt I had to be a little bit careful about that. And so, you know, I did some follow-ups on the hot hand that I never published, Partly out of just eh, I don't I don't want that to be my um, identity, so some of it is that. Right. With respect to the new stuff, this work by Miller and San Giorgio, um, I you know how that's all going to play out. I think people are going to give more credence to other people's comments on that. I, you know, if I have anything to say about it. Uh, people are going to think, oh, he has too much of a vested interest in this, and I'm sure I'd sound defensive. And mm-hmm. It's, uh, you know, time will tell, and we'll let better right. than I settle that. You know, I did my part. And, uh, you know, also, I'm an experimentalist and right. uh, not really a big data person, although I used to always say that, <laughs> The great thing about sports is there was all this data a lot. Before there was big data, there was big sports data and that was very convenient. Um but uh there are other people with better analytic tools than I have at my disposal to do that. If it if it seems like an issue in the hot hand debate uh, would be settled by an experiment, I may rejoin the fray. But uh now that it truly is a big data. Enterprise, there's other people much better positioned to investigate it than I.
2: I really appreciate that answer, Tom, because it shows quite a bit of intellectual humility. Something that I find um, often, if you have scholars who did become famous, for instance, because of that one thing, it's very hard for them to um, step aside from that identity that co co evolved with the phenomenon. So for them, it's hard, I think, to show that. And um, yeah, I really appreciate that you are able to sort of say, well, others will potentially be be able to give a better answer to this question later on with potentially newer methods, because that's how science evolves instead of uh, being in black or white categories. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, actually, there's a nice example that we've already touched on this. Imagine that uh Uri didn't write that paper but for some reason uh, imagine I were as smart as he is and I wrote it I think people would go meh it just wouldn't have the same force behind it because oh Mm -hmm. that's that defensive guy and nicely Uri weighed in and so the broader story about people overestimating the amount of streakiness is I think taken more seriously it's um by virtue of the fact that someone other than I said it.
1: I was interested, like, I'm going to go, I've got a big juicy question to switch to, but it's in, I've never heard of that idea before um, of uh, an academic thinking about not wanting to be, essentially not being typecast. It's like a young Matthew McConaughey saying, like, I've done enough romantic comedies I need to go in a different direction, otherwise I'm going to be trapped in this space and it's going to become it's going to define me. But I've never thought about that with academics. So you are the Matthew McConaughey, I think, of, of the <laughs> social psychology world. Um, so um, my next question is about. Um, so there, there's a paper that has been like causing um, a lot of excitement. Uh, I think you know in psychology and beyond. Um, and when we. Um, confirmed that you're going to be on the podcast. Igor was like, we've got to, we've got to see what Tom thinks about this. This is, it's a big paper and, um, potentially has significant implications. And we thought it'd be really interesting to get your take on it. You know, you, you no doubt will have some insight about it. So it's, um, it's a paper by Nick Chater and George Lowenstein. Uh, it's called the I frame and the S frame. Um, how focusing on individual level solutions has led behavioral public policy astray. And we'll put a link to it in the show notes so folks can read it. But um, it kind of suggests that like the the sort of obsession with nudges and the behavioral economics movement um, may have missed some of the big picture systemic effects and um, essentially kind of let um, institutions, perhaps corporations off the hook um, and encouraged us to think that, you know, all these things are in the, the the gift of the individual Um, and, I potentially we as a result have overlooked some useful work that could be done on the policy level that could also help to improve society. So um I'm really interested I don't know if it's it's a paper that you've read uh, or or if not that I've given you enough to kind of uh, chew on but um I'd be interested in your perspective on that you know has has the nudge thing um maybe being a camouflage to a certain extent and allowing some other big players off the hook and how you would encourage young researchers to think about this if they were picking which field perhaps to go into there's a lot there
0: yeah you know i don't remember if i've actually read the paper i've heard george talk about it so i know the the claim very familiar with it and i've lost Mm. sight of it do i know it only from listening or from reading i can't now remember Mm -hmm. um I have to start by saying I'm a fan of both of them. George has done so much interesting work. He's so creative and, you know, tackles interesting hypotheses, you know,
1: Hmm.
0: left and right. Nick Chater has, you know, just done amazing stuff. In fact, I would want to recommend to all of your listeners that, I'm not sure I'll get the title right, but a recent book of his, uh, you know, a trade book, a popular book, something like that. The, the mind, mind is flat. Yeah, the mind yeah. is flat. Yeah, It's fantastic. And oh. I can't imagine someone reading it and not enjoying it. Um, so uh, lots of adulation directed in their uh, mm. direction. But I, I worry a little bit that it's like that um, sort of black and white thinking that we were talking about earlier, which is... Um, I don't think it needs to be one or the other, that obviously a bunch of problems have to be solved at the policy level rather than the individual behavioral level. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't think that nudging people to behave in ways that are, most, that are both more individually and societally productive precludes that. You could argue that it gives a sense of success. Okay, got it. We don't need this other stuff. I don't know whether that's mm-hmm. the case or not. Um, and But from a psychological perspective, one thing I'm concerned about in the argument is, look, when you nudge me to do something, in addition to the nudge that gets me to do it, The fact that I've done it changes who I am and is going to... So let's say you nudge me to recycle. I become a different person and therefore more likely to vote in politicians who are likely to adopt the very policies that they are rightfully concerned about. So I don't, as much as they do, see the tension
1: between the two. I say, bring them both on. That's interesting. I wonder, like, with nudging it's does it change your identity because it's sort of happening uh, you know below the level of consciousness you know you're not making a decision to recycle you're just not really thinking about it and you happen to recycle so but but you feel that does actually change your self-image
0: yeah, because even if I don't make a conscious decision to do that, self-perception mm-hmm. theory tells us that, you know, we look at our behavior and mm-hmm. the context in which it occurs and mm-hmm. draw conclusions about mm-hmm. ourselves. Hey, look what I'm doing. I <laughs> guess I care about the environment. Right. Here's somebody who doesn't seem to care about global warming. I'm not voting for that person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think... A lot of the nudge work could change people in a way that makes them more likely to embrace policies that Nick and George are very rightly concerned about.
2: One thing, if I were to push back here a little bit, Thomas, we don't know, or do we know if the effects uh, of your nudge on your behavior versus your nudge on you then being able to vote for a particular politician would be equivalent. And I can imagine that the effect for the second type of second order effect um, would be much weaker. So you would need to do much, much more in terms of nudging to lead to those uh, systemic shifts after the fact. So why not go for those systemic shifts, uh, maybe in parallel uh, to the shifts in terms of nudging individuals?
0: So. Yeah, I, you know, I don't know. Um, and yeah. actually, you're making me think that there's some interesting research to be done here. We do know, yeah. at least since the time of Festinger, that the less incentive you provide, the less force, inducement to get someone to do something, the more they're going to change their attitudes in line with what they've just done. And so when. <laughs> the policy changes and you know the government is doing things you go okay great it's all being done and i don't have to pay attention to this and uh, i'm not invested in it whereas if i've taken some baby steps to solve the problem i'm changed by virtue of those baby steps especially if the nudge which is really the essence of the thaler sunstein idea the nudges are often very subtle And so I change and um, I become a kind of person who's really going to embrace the broad. I've I've not just contributed a few more dollars to my uh, 401k. I'm now paying attention to the financial health of my family and making other investments too. And uh, so it's a, it's a researchable question. Uh, you you can right. imagine uh, creating uh, a world, an experimental world in which uh, policy is enacted and you examine what's the effect of that on people's beliefs about the things that the policies are designed to mm-hmm. affect. Or you nudge people into behavior consistent with uh, the underlying desire and then you look at people's broader attitudes, and very possibly subsequent behavior with respect to the issue at hand. And it's uh, obviously at some level, it's an empirical question, which is uh, uh, more powerful. And it's going to depend on the nature of the nudge, depending on how subtle the nudge is and what it gets you to do. If it gets you to do a very noticeable behavior that is identity relevant, the bigger the nudge effect is going to be. So,
2: right.
0: Igor, I think you've just uh, sketched out a program of research that I think you should uh, take <laughs> on.
2: Oh, yeah, totally. Just just me.
1: By <laughs> yeah. So it sounds like uh, a one-person job, for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's yeah. for sure.
2: I mean, of course, it's much more complicated, too, because then you also have the, uh, the boosting ideas that uh, Ralph, Ralph Hertwig and his colleagues have, which is somewhat different perspective on how to alter individual levels behaviors like through sort of more agentic more conscious type of uh, manipulations Uh instead of like more subtle Um, yeah i mean i think a program of research would probably want to compare all three and see uh, uh, different interactions between them so another question for you tom And uh, this one is uh, less about the large-scale systemic either or black and white um, things about the (laughs) world that we live in or may not want to live in, but it's more about your work. And that is, which area of your work are you most proud of in terms of how much it can improve people's lives? You've done so much. You've done so many different things. You didn't didn't want to potentially... Um, um, stereotype yourself in a particular corner. Uh, But as a consequence of that, you've done quite a number of different things. So which of them are you, would you say you're most proud of in terms of uh, impact on human life?
0: Um, I think in terms of the feedback I've gotten from people who um, say they've been influenced, not academics, uh, just Mm -hmm. people on the street saying, oh, you're the one who did that. It Mm -hmm. led me to something that they like that they have done. Um, it's a twin program, uh, two different programs of research that fit together. Um, I did this work on regret in the 90s, in the mid early and mid-90s, uh, looking at whether you right. regret things that you did more than things that you didn't do. And there was, at the time, this... Uh, paradoxical combination that a lot of work by, again, Kahneman Tversky, among others, showing that, you know, mm-hmm. you regret an action mistake. Selling a stock and losing money hurts much more than not buying one and losing out uh, as a result of that. Or the famous case for students is if you take a multiple choice test and you think the answer is B and then all of a sudden you go, wait, maybe it's D and you switch to D and get it wrong. Mm -hmm. You just kick yourself. Whereas if you stay with B and it turns Mm -hmm. out D is the right answer, you're bothered by that, but not nearly as much. Commission hurts more than omission. So that's fact A. And then fact B was you ask people, which we did, what do you, you know, people who've lived for a long time, what are your biggest regrets? What they would say disproportionately, even though they had regrets of action, is that the inaction regrets loomed larger. And um, that was, um, you know, that leads to some practical advice, which is to, as Teddy Roosevelt would often say, you know, he would Yes, he was sort of prone to depression himself, and he would will himself yes. to out of it by, as he put it, get action, be an active, striving person, take chances, and he'd almost kind of browbeat his kids with that idea. wasn't sure it was his. It's not clear that it was as helpful for them as it was for him. Mm-hmm. Anyway, mm-hmm. so the implicit advice is, you know, the Nike slogan, just do it, and that's not quite right um, because, well, let's put it this way. Uh, I was hiking once and, um, you know, you hike in the mountains and you get up to a mountain stream. It's frigid in the water and you're hot and you're silent. Do I want to go from this hot state to that cold of a state? And you go in this debate about whether to jump in or not. And there was this Australian guy there who said, You never regret a swim, and I heard that. and I bought the uh, advice and went in, loved it, and so on. But, of course, it's not strictly true. Uh, That is to say, most of the time, you don't regret a swim. But there are people who have gone swimming and drowned, and they're not alive to regret it, but their relatives regret it and so on. So it's not strictly true. So we can't fully embrace the Nike slogan. So then the question is, well, what is your advice from that work? Well, that's where it ties into this other work that we did shortly afterwards, because so many of the regrets that people reported involving things they didn't do, they didn't do them because they were worried about how they would look to other people. And often was stuff that it just seemed like other people aren't really going to care that much about maybe not notice cut you lots of slack for Mm -hmm. oh i always wanted to get on the dance floor but i was worried how i'd look well no one's gonna think you're a bad person if you can't dance that well they'll probably think you're a good person for being bold enough to do it etc
2: yeah Yeah.
0: so we did all this work on the spotlight effect and Mm -hmm. And that did lead to the marriage between those does lead to some practical advice. So we can't fully, I don't think, embrace the Nike slogan because it can lead to, taken seriously, can lead to broken marriages, broken friendships, incarceration, bankruptcies, et cetera, et cetera. There's no end to bad things. Um, But if... The reason you're right. tempted not to do something is simply the fear of embarrassment, not mortification, not you know ostracism because you've done something morally terrible, but the kind of everyday social fears that people have. Then, then the advice does hold. Just get over it. Other people aren't going to notice as much, etc. Anyway, all of this is to say that. Um, there've just been a number of people who in a very um, heartfelt way have said, Oh, you know, when I heard about that, I then did this thing that I'm now glad that I have done, mm-hmm. whether it's take up ballroom dancing or mm-hmm. play in a band or who knows what. And so I feel like, well, if that made some number of people's lives better, that's got to be the thing that I'm most proud of. <laughs>
2: it's so interesting. Go ahead.
1: I was okay. just trying to just think the slogan is, if the reason you're thinking of not doing it is because of the fear of embarrassment, just do it.
0: Yes. Yeah. Right. Uh, try, try selling that to <laughs> Nike. Uh, yeah. But yeah, that's <laughs> the idea. That's the academic version right. of the Nike yes. slogan.
2: <laughs> In some ways, it's uh, basically a very similar to cognitive reappraisal strategies for emotion regulation, too. Like you, you yeah, come up yeah. with a different reason to to mitigate the, the those uh, emotive reactions that you have. It's interesting. Yeah, and that I you think there's this, you know, there's an
0: exercise that you can do to deal with this that's just very mm-hmm. powerful. Which is, you know, someone says, uh, uh, I don't want to take that promotion, or I can't do this for these reasons because I'm worried about how people will feel." You just say, okay, draw a circle representing all these people that you're concerned about. And then okay, of who who are all the people that you might be concerned of? Who do you think will even notice? And I'll draw a smaller circle. Whose are the opinions you think of these people who will notice mm-hmm truly will judge you harshly rather than give you the benefit of the doubt. A smaller circle. Um, and who's of these remaining people who are opinions you care about. And it keeps getting to be a smaller and smaller mm-hmm. circle. And just as you point out, Igor, that's very helpful from a motion regulating. Hey, this isn't going to be so
1: bad. I can, I can do this. I when I heard that I, I do sometimes like it's liberating to know that people are not uh the spotlight is not really on you it's kind of it is liberating but it's also like a bit of a shame that like it's essentially saying people maybe could be interpreted as people don't really care about you as much as you think (laughs) um yeah um and
0: i suppose that can be a problem but you know getting back to the original thing about happiness um oliver berkman has a new book uh Mm -hmm. He, you know, right. he's a journalist who studied, does a lot of stuff on happiness, and his first book—well, not sure—it's the first book of his I know of. The antidote is terrific about sort of a a balancing of all the positive psychology that mm. uh, you know he doesn't take issue with it, but just you know, the goal of life is not to be giddily happy all the time, and. It, Takes sort of a Buddhist right. perspective on things. Anyway, his most recent book is on time management, and one of the chapters is uh, on cognitive no cosmic insignificance therapy. <laughs> thinking uh, about you yeah. how insignificant you are in the cosmos that can sound like it's very depressing, but <laughs> in reality, it's very li- it's more liberating than it is depressing. Right. That, you know, yeah. Why worry about this?
1: You know. Uh, that's but We had Oliver Berkman on the podcast uh, ah. and he was talking about this book that he was working on. So it's, I'm glad to hear from you, Tom. This is breaking news that it's finished. So uh, we should probably go get a copy. But um, yeah. Oh, but,
0: I'm, well, I'm very shortly going to listen to that. I've, I've never met him, I haven't heard him, but his books, uh, the two books I've read, are terrific. And uh, yeah. so I uh, look forward to hearing what you guys asked him and what he had to
1: say. Brilliant. Tom, thank you so much for coming on the show. We, we put aside half an hour. We've bust through the wall of that, like in an embarrassing fashion. It was fascinating. I, I knew it was going to be an interesting one. I was really looking forward to this. Um, but it, it was uh, fascinating in ways I didn't expect. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, thank
0: you. This was really a lot
1: of fun. And um, for listeners, uh, if you've enjoyed the show, go on to iTunes, give us, I think, try to give us six stars. I don't think it goes up to six, but, you know, um, six plus or minus one would would be fine. Um, And uh, tune in shortly for our next guest. But thank you again, Tom. This was fascinating. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, guys. See
2: ya. Charles, we just had Tom Gilovich. I still can't believe it. Uh, my hero uh, when I was an undergraduate I was reading study after study all those amazing super clever experiments by Tom Gilovich and here he is on our podcast what did you think?
1: Uh, well number one you know the he is an incredibly lovely person, and we yes. got we 'd heard well, you know you met him before obviously i 'd heard that he was lovely, but I was like, "How lovely can this guy really be? He really is that lovely uh he was intellectually humble uh, he 's done so much really important you know groundbreaking work, but he just comes across very open minded. Um, and he came across. As, he seemed wise. He seemed like a wise individual. Um, and so wrote
2: the book on wisdom. I guess that he
1: he literally wrote the book on wisdom. Um, so um, and I think I my I mean there was a lot I liked about it. I, I I thought it was quite touching the stuff at the end when he was talking about um the you know people coming up to him in the street and saying that your work has you know uh, had an impact on my life and you could tell that that was um significant for him so it was nice to see that human side of it as well as we was talking about you know the the um the spotlight effect being something that people had found useful in their own day-to-day lives and perhaps help them deal with anxiety and things so yeah um i that was that was my favorite bit but what about you
2: I liked it all. I mean, I I found the discussion on the you know this the basketball analogies, the hot hand uh, mm-hmm. fallacy or lack of fallacy of what it means right. and how he handled that mm-hmm. uh, quite interesting. Um, I found his reflections on the I and S frame by um, that has been circulating in the media mm-hmm. quite interesting. Uh, it, it's different from how I would have thought about it, uh, mm-hmm. but I. I totally see that uh, this don't necessarily have to be two uh, completely idiosyncratic approaches and that they might be interrelated. I think there's certainly uh, a very valid point in there.
1: Yeah. Uh,
2: yeah. And I just like that, you know, we asked with this, uh, we started with this very joyful question about why he's so happy and he will go hmm. straight into reflecting on his upbringing. I think yeah. that was really interesting.
1: Yeah. Um, there was also a theme that I just think is worth pulling out is this like um, overly harsh categorization that we do and black and white yes. thinking that was a theme in especially response.
2: nowadays yeah
1: yeah and um, that's that seemed to be something that he would kept on coming back to in response to different you know including the iframe s-frame thing um, mm-hmm. so it was um, yeah it's a, it's a good takeaway yeah so tom gilovich tom gilovich on the on podcast who'd have thought it anyway he was great I enjoyed him. me too